0: section six of a book of scoundrels by charles wibley this librivox recording is in the public domain ralph briscoe a spare lean frame a small head set forward upon a pair of sloping shoulders a thin sharp nose and rat-like eyes a flat hollow chest shrunk shanks modestly retreating from their snuff-coloured hose These are the tokens which serve to remind his friends of Ralph Briscoe, the clerk of Newgate. As he left the prison in the grey air of morning, upon some errand of mercy or revenge, he appeared the least fearsome of mortals, while an awkward limp upon his left toe deepened the impression of timidity. So abstract was his manner, so hesitant his gait, that he would hug the wall as he went, nervously stroking its grimy surface with his long, twittering fingers. But Ralph, as Justice and the Jug knew too well, was neither fool nor coward. His character belied his outward seeming. A large soul had crept into the case of his wizened body, and if a poltroon among his ancestors had gifted him with an alien type, he had inherited from some nameless warrior both courage and resource. He was born in easy circumstances, and gently nurtured in the distant village of Kensington. Though cast in a scholar's mould, and very apt for learning, he rebelled from the outset against a career of inaction. His lack of strength was never a check upon his high stomach. He would fight with boys of twice his size, and accept the certain defeat in a cheerful spirit of dogged pugnacity. Moreover, if his arms were weak, his cunning was as keen-edged as his tongue, and before his stricken eye had paled, he had commonly executed an ample vengeance upon his enemy. Nor was it industry that placed him at the top of the class. A ready wit made him master of the knowledge he despised. But he would always desert his primer to follow the hangman's lumbering cart up Tyburn Hill, and still a mere imp of mischief he would run the weary way from Kensington to Shoe Lane on the distant chance of a cock-fight. He was present, so he would relate in after years, when Sir Thomas German's man put his famous trick upon the pit. With a hundred pounds in his pocket, and under his arm a dunghill cock neatly trimmed for the fray, the ingenious ruffian, as Briscoe would tell you, went off to Shoe Lane, persuaded an accomplice to fight the cock in Sir Thomas German's name, And laid a level hundred against his own bird so lofty was sir thomas's repute that backers were easily found but the dunghill rooster instantly showed a clean pair of heels and the cheat was justified of his cunning thus ralph briscoe learnt the first lessons in that art of sharping whereon he was afterwards an adept and when he left school his head was packed with many a profitable device which no book-learning could impart. His father, however, still resolute that he should join an intelligent profession, sent him to Gray's Inn that he might study law. Here the elegance of his handwriting gained him a rapid repute. His skill became the envy of all the lean-souled clerks in the inn, and he might have died a respectable attorney had not the instinct of sport forced him from the ink-pot and parchment of his profession. Ill could he tolerate the monotony and restraint of this clerkly life. In his eyes, law was an instrument not of justice, but of jugglery. Men were born, said his philosophy, rather to risk their necks than ink their fingers, and if a bold adventure puts you in a difficulty, why then, you hire some straw-splitting attorney to show his cunning. Indeed, the study of law was for him, as it was for Falstaff, an excuse for many a bout and merry-making. He loved his glass, and he loved his wench, and he loved a bull-baiting better than either. It was his boast, and Mole Cutpurse's compliment, that he never missed a match in his life. And assuredly no man was better known in Paris Garden than the intrepid Ralph Briscoe. The cloistered seclusion of Gray's Inn grew daily more irksome, there he would sit in mute despair drumming the table with his fingers and biting his quill whose use he so bitterly condemned of winter afternoons he would stare through the leaded window-panes at the gaunt leafless trees on whose summits swayed the cawing rooks until servitude seemed intolerable and he prayed for the voice of the bear ward that summoned him to southwark and when the chained bear the familiar monkey on his back followed the shrill bagpipe along the curious street briscoe felt that blood not ink coursed in his veins forgot the tiresome impediment of the law and joined the throng hungry for this sport of kings nor was he the patron of an enterprise wherein he dared take no part he was as bold and venturesome as the bravest ruffler that ever backed a dog at a baiting when the bull cruelly secured behind met the onslaught of his opponents throwing them off now this side now that with his horns briscoe lost in excitement would leap into the ring that not a point of the combat should escape him so it was that he won the friendship of his illustrious benefactress moll Cutpurse. purse for one day when he had ventured too near the maddened bull the brute made a heave at his breeches which instantly gave way and in another moment he would have been gored to death had not mole seized him by the collar and slung him out of the ring thus did his courage ever contradict his appearance and at the dangerous game of whipping the blinded bear he had no rival either for bravery or adroitness he would rush in with uplifted whip until the breath of the infuriated beast was hot upon his cheek Let his angry lash curl for an instant against the bear's flank, and then, for all his halting foot, leap back into safety with a smiling pride in his own nimbleness. His acquaintance with Mole Cutpurse, casually begun at a bull-baiting, speedily ripened, for her into friendship, for him into love. In this, the solitary romance of his life, Ralph Briscoe overtopped even his own achievements of courage. The roaring girl was no more young, and years had not refined her character unto gentleness. It was still her habit to appear publicly in Jerkin and gallegaskins, to smoke tobacco in contempt of her sex, and to fight her enemies with a very fury of insolence. In stature she exceeded the limping clerk by a head, and she could pick him up with one hand like a kitten. Yet he loved her, not for any grace of person. Nor beauty of feature, nor even because her temperament was undaunted as his own, he loved her for that wisest of reasons, which is no reason at all, because he loved her in his eyes, she was the queen not of misrule but of hearts. Had a throne been his, she should have shared it, and he wooed her with a shy intensity which ennobled him even in her austere regard. alas. She was unable to return his passion, and she lamented her own obduracy with a characteristic humour. She made no attempt to conceal her admiration. A notable and famous person, she called him, confessing that he was right for her tooth, and made to her mind in every part of him. He had been bred up in the same exercise of bull-baiting which was her own delight. She had always praised his towardliness and prophesied his preferment. But when he paid her court, she was obliged to decline the honour, while she esteemed the compliment. In truth, she was completely insensible to passion, or, as she exclaimed in a phrase of brilliant independence, I should have hired him to my embraces. The sole possibility that remained was a platonic friendship, and Briscoe accepted the situation in excellent humour. Ever since he came to know himself—again it is Mole that speaks—he always deported himself to me with an abundance of regard, calling me his aunt. And his aunt she remained unto the end, bound to him in a proper and natural alliance. Different as they were in aspect, they were strangely alike in taste and disposition. Nor was the Paris garden their only meeting ground. His sorry sojourn in Gray's Inn had thrown him on the side of the lawbreaker, and he had acquired a strange cunning in the difficult art of evading justice. Instantly Moll recognised his practical value, and exerting all her talent for intrigue, presently secured for him the clerkship of Newgate. Here at last he found scope not only for his learning, but for that spirit of adventure that breathed within him. His meagre acquaintance with letters placed him on a pinnacle high above his colleagues. Now and then a prisoner proved his equal in wit, but as he was manifestly superior in intelligence to the governor, the ordinary, and all the warders, he speedily seized and and hereinafter retained the real sovereignty of Newgate. His early progress was barred by envy and contempt, Why, asked the men in possession, should this shrivelled stranger filch our privileges? And Briscoe met their malice with an easy smile, knowing that at all points he was more than their match. His alliance with Moll stood him in good stead, and in a few months the Twain were the supreme arbiters of English justice. Should a highwayman seek to save his neck, he must first pay a fat indemnity to the Newgate clerk but since Moll was the appointed banker of the whole family, she was quick to sanction whatever price her accomplice suggested. And Briscoe had a hundred other tricks, whereby he increased his riches and repute. There was no debtor came to Newgate whom the clerk would not aid, if he believed the kindness profitable. Suppose his inquiries gave an assurance of his victim's recovery, he would house him comfortably feed him at his own table, lent him money, and even condescend to win back the generous loan by the dice-box. His civility gave him a general popularity among the prisoners, and his appearance in the yard was a signal for a subdued hilarity. He drank and gambled with the roisterers, he babbled a cheap philosophy with the erudite, and he sold the necks of all to the highest bidder though now and again he was convicted of mercy or revenge, he commonly held himself aloof from human passions, and pursued the one sane end of life in an easy security. The hostility of his colleagues irked him but little. A few tags of Latin, the friendship of Mole, and a casual threat of exposure frightened the governor into acquiescence. But the ordinary was more difficult of conciliation. The clerk had not long been in Newgate before he saw that between the reverend gentleman and himself there could be naught save war. Hitherto the ordinary had reserved to his own profit the right of intrigue. He it was who had received the hard scraped money of the sorrowing relatives, and untied the noose when it seemed good to him. Frisco insisted upon a division of labour. "'It is your business,' he said, to save the scoundrels in the other world. Leave to me the profit of their salvation in this. And the clerk triumphed after his wont. Freedom jingled in his pocket. He doled out comfort, even life, to the oppressed, and he extorted a comfortable fortune in return for privileges which were never in his gift. Without the walls of Newgate the house of his frequentation was the Dog Tavern, thither he would wander every afternoon to meet his clients and to extort blood-money in this haunt of criminals and pettifoggers no man was better received than the newgate clerk and while he assumed a manner of generous cordiality it was a strange sight to see him wince when some sturdy ruffian slapped him too strenuously upon the back he had a joke and a chuckle for all and his merry quips dry as they were were joyously quoted to all newcomers. His legal ingenuity appeared miraculous, and it was confidently asserted in the coffee-house that he could turn black to white with so persuasive an argument that there was no judge on the bench to confute him. But he was not omnipotent, and his zeal encountered many a serious check. At times he failed to save the necks even of his intimates, since when once a ruffian was notorious, Mole and the clerk fought vainly for his release. Thus it was that Cheney, the famous wrestler, whom Ralph had often backed against all comers, died at Tyburn. He had been taken by the troopers red-handed upon the highway. Seized after a desperate resistance, he was wounded well-nigh to death, and Briscoe quoted a dozen precedents to prove that he was unfit to be tried or hanged. Argument failing, the munificent clerk offered fifty pounds for the life of his friend but to no purpose. The valiant wrestler was carried to the cart in a chair, and so lifted to the gallows, which cured him of his gaping wounds. When the Commonwealth administered justice with pedantic severity, Briscoe's influence still further declined. There was no longer scope in the State for men of spirit. Even the gaols were handed over to the stern mercy of crop-eared Puritans. Moll herself had fallen upon evil times, and Ralph Briscoe determined to make a last effort for wealth and retirement. At the very moment when his expulsion seemed certain, an heiress was thrown into Newgate upon a charge of murdering a too importunate suitor. The chain of evidence was complete. The dagger plunged in his heart was recognised for her own. She was seen to decoy him to the secret corner of a wood, where his raucous love-making was silenced for ever. Taken off her guard, she had even hinted confession of her crime, and nothing but intrigue could save her gentle neck from the gallows. Briscoe, hungry for her money-bags, promised assistance. He bribed, he threatened, he cajoled, he twisted the law as only he could twist it. He suppressed honest testimony, he procured false. In fine he weakened the case against her with so resistless an effrontery that not the hanging judge himself could convict the poor innocent. At the outset he had agreed to accept a handsome bribe, but as the trial approached his avarice increased, and he would be content with nothing less than the lady's hand and fortune. Not that he loved her—his heart was long since given to Mole Cutpurse. But he knew that his career of depredation was at an end, and it became him to provide for his declining years. The victim repulsed his suit, regretting a thousand times that she had stabbed her ancient lover. At last, bidden summarily to choose between death and the clerk, she chose the clerk, and thus Ralph Briscoe left Newgate, the richest squire in a western county. Henceforth he farmed his land like a gentleman— drank with those of his neighbours who would crack a bottle with him, and unlock the strange stories of his memory to bumpkins who knew not the name of Newgate. Still devoted to sport, he hunted the fox, and made such a bullring as his youthful imagination could never have pictured. So he lived a life of country ease, and died a churchwarden. And he deserved his prosperity, for he carried the soul of Falstaff, In the shrunken body of Justice Shallow. End of section six.